Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 238, and I'm still in Roatan. Since you last heard from me, probably the best thing that we've done was we went out to the east end of Roatan. We went to a place called Oak Ridge and a place called Punta Gorda. Now, in Punta Gorda, there are communities of Garifuna, the Garifuna are descendants of the Afro-Indigenous population in the Caribbean, uh, namely St. Vincent. And they trace their ancestry and heritage back to Africa. There are really wonderfully colored homes there. It is quite different from the West End in that it is quieter, it's calmer, there's fewer people. And one of the big things we wanted to do there was to eat machuca. What this is, is plantains that are pounded and mashed together into a giant ball. It's almost like, kind of like uh, mofongo. And it's served alongside a soup that has coconut broth. It's a little spicy, it's savory. There was a whole red snapper in there and some other seafood. It was like a two-pound bowl of food, and it was absolutely delicious. We kind of just drove down the street and, and asked people, like, hey, where can we get it? And there was a storefront home that had places to sit in the back, and you were literally sitting above the water. So, like, before we ate, Les dived into the water and was swimming around. It was a really beautiful setting and an unbelievably delicious meal, and one that I hadn't heard of until I came here. Our very first day, Tino gave us a ride from the airport to where we're staying here in West End. And we said to him, like, what is one thing we absolutely have to try? And he was like, oh, man, you got to go out to the east and get machuca. And we did. And Tino, you were right. It was absolutely delicious. And uh, I'd love to go back there. Probably my favorite place so far on the island. Today, I talked with Nicholas Bach from the Roatan Marine Park. They're right here in West End, like just a stone's throw from where we're staying. And the Marine Park is a team of conservationists and they are working to protect Roatan's marine ecosystems and natural resources. And ultimately, the people that depend upon the ecosystem, the ocean, and the natural resources here. Uh, his specific title and job is that he is the Patrols and Marine Infrastructure Coordinator, but he does a whole lot. He's incredibly knowledgeable on all things that have to do with protecting the ecosystem and the reef here in Roatan. He also has been all over the world doing this work, so he's just a, a fascinating guy in addition to being incredibly knowledgeable on this work. They are an important organization, and it really was an honor to get to sit down with him and to share their story and their mission. There are ways that you can support them and to help them to protect the ecosystem here. He'll talk a little bit more about that, but there will also be links in the notes for whatever your player, whatever player you're listening to this podcast in. There'll be a hyperlink. You just go straight to that and you'll find ways that you can support. They have a shop here with some really cool looking t-shirts and all sorts of water gear and some local honey 
and wreath safe sunscreen and insect repellent and things like that. So if you're here in Roatan, I recommend that that's the first stop that you go to <laughs> because uh, day one I was a bit cocky and I didn't think that uh, the bugs would be so bad. But those noceums are no joke, man. Um, my legs and arms and back were just like riddled with these bites that get these big rings around it. It goes away in like kind of like a day, but it's not fun. So make sure you get some insect repellent if you come here. Uh, and, you know, repellent that is not going to be harmful to the reef and the ecosystem. And the marine park has got that for you. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Nicholas Bach. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I'm judging from your accent that you're not from here. So where are you from originally? Uh, no, my name is Nicholas Bach, and I'm originally from London. So was there a point in early life where you drew a liking to the ocean or to, to conservation, or did that come later? No, ever since I was a small kid, I always wanted to be involved in marine biology, even though I didn't really know what it entailed. So I was fortunate enough to go to Barbados a lot when I was younger. Uh -huh. So I was always by the water, being around the marine life, and kind of always snorkeling and fishing and stuff. So I've always wanted to be involved in it, but uh, yeah, I guess it's, I actually was fortunate enough to achieve my goal of what I wanted to be as a kid, which many people don't get. Today. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. I get to do that a tiny bit through this, like sort of like live out my little Indiana Jones fantasy, but that's amazing. Like, were your parents doing something for work in Barbados or you were just traveling there? No, my granddad had a house there from years ago. So oh, that's amazing. So family members get to go there each year and we would go every other year. So obviously it's changed a lot since I last went there, which happens in Caribbean countries with development. But uh, yeah, um, it's something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be involved in marine life, whether it's scuba diving, kind of doing things and I don't necessarily do marine biology stuff in my roles and responsibilities now but it got me to where I am. I see and one of the first places where you were like working within this world was in the Philippines? Yeah so uh, basically there's an organization called Coral Cay Conservation uh, basically you get volunteers you go to remote islands and you do very simple science collection data so, so they're kind of doing surveys and I was fortunate enough to do four months in the Philippines doing that. What island were you on? So the first one was an island called Negros, which is on the south part of, you know, no, I was on, Christ, I can't remember the name. <laughs> I was on a very small island, uh, and then I actually went to another one which was even more remote, which was on the northern point of Palawan. So, oh, yeah. Uh, it was amazing. I mean, unfortunately, you would hear a lot of dynamite going off, and you'd see the destruction done. That's a very simple way of fishing. You basically throw a stick of dynamite or a bottle of dynamite. All the fish, basically, they're swim bladders rupture, they float to the surface and you scoop them up. But obviously it destroys whole areas of reef and it, where you think it would be pristine, you just find this uh, destruction. Wow. Are the, I'm assuming then there's a lot of efforts to stopping that or preventing um, it. Obviously conservation efforts aren't as advanced in some areas and mm -hmm. whether it's the Navy that do it, but I mean you'd find bottles which hadn't exploded. You would see in villages people whose hands have been you know, removed from the dynamite. So yeah, it's a very cheap, easy, quick method, but obviously it's very destructive and it is illegal. It actually is illegal here because they used to do it in, in, in the Bay Islands years ago. Wow, that's wild. So, yeah. I was in, um, I spent a little bit of time in Shargao, sort of like, it's not all the way south, it's, it's kind of tough right now, all the way south in the Philippines, um, but like 
Mid-South. And that was mostly a reef. Like that's where I, I surfed for the first time. And it was quite painful because it was all uh, coral bottom. But I could see how fishing with dynamite there would be incredibly destructive to the ecosystem. Yeah, it's really depressing. You kind of see these beautiful little atolls in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you just find this one area where it's just gone. Didn't we, or we, sorry, didn't, uh, I think the states also, like, in the, the lead-up to using atomic weapons was, like, blowing up atolls in the Pacific, maybe, like, testing out Yeah, nukes. totally, and now they do it with uh, testing battleships in the, uh, I guess, the Arctic, where they were seeing whether it could withstand a giant blast, so you've got to think about whales and other fish and stuff around that area, which get impacted by these huge explosions. So, Whoa. yeah, I guess the development of wars does a lot of damage, it's a good place to test in the sea. That is nuts. Now, I read uh, sort of in your bio that you had done your thesis in Mombasa, uh, in Kenya. So I didn't really spend time in Mombasa. I was uh, primarily in the north, but I did go to like Diani Beach, which is near Mombasa. Uh, can you talk about like what that thesis was about, what the research you were doing was? Okay, so actually for my undergrad, when I went to Portsmouth, uh, my first research uh, study was actually in Florida. So I was at Moat Marine Laboratory, and I was seeing uh, basically how seagrass grows and basically the growth rates of it. So I'd go to different areas and kind of stick a little pinprick and see how things grow and measure the sizes. So that was my first experiment. And then for my master's, yes, yeah, so I went to Mombasa. So I was kind of interested in marine parks and the process of spillover. So the theory is if you protect an area and have it as a no-take zone, people then can kind of fish on the outskirts. And if you've got this main resource of fish, you'll have this basically protected species and then things will come out and people can fish. And theoretically, the further away, you'll have less spillover because there'll be more intensity of fishing. So the idea is in Mombasa, they use fish traps and they're catching a lot of parrotfish, which actually people shouldn't be catching because they're very important herbivorous fish. So they're basically crying up something called gozi. So they'd actually get a whole load of brittle stars, grind them up and use that as bait. So the theory is, closer you are, like if you drop your fish traps right by the boundary, you'll catch a lot more fish the further away. I don't think the fishermen were really understanding the questions I was asking, and maybe they just kind of made up the distance of where the boundary line is, because it's not like there's a definitive line drawn down. It was kind of like, this area is protected, this area is not, and as you go further away, you can't really see it. Um, I did also want to try and do something in Diani, because I did go there. I spent a few days there, and that was interesting, because it's kind of a completely different area and they're using fish traps as well. However, because they've removed most of the main, basically the bigger upper level fish, it's very different. There's tons of sea urchins. So actually for bait they use there, they pick up the sea urchins, grind that up and use it. So basically now you're using a completely different bait because you've changed the ecosystem because you've removed the top predators that would normally eat the sea urchins. So as a comparison, it wasn't possible. Um, so yeah, the spillover effect, I mean, yeah, you can do lots of research and in theory, as long as you actually do enforcement where people can't fish and you actually have a definitive boundary line and do good research where you, maybe you put the traps down, then you can prove it. I see. I'm smiling because I stepped on a sea urchin at Diani Beach and had to have like makeshift surgery on the beach to get all the spines pulled out and it was, it was a nightmare, man. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> I think I did that quite a bit in Barbados because you have the big long spine sea urchins. And, they and those are poisonous, off. huh? Uh, there's a bit of venom, and it uh. does cause swelling and irritation. Actually, last time I got a bunch in my foot, I was in Hawaii surfing and kind of fell onto one, and that 
definitely took a while. You're supposed to like soak it in hot water and vinegar and they should have, yeah, it's, it's not fun. Yeah. No, I think this is going to be a theme that comes up a lot in this conversation, but I'm thinking about the Philippines, um, thinking about the eastern part of Africa. I'd imagine that what you're dealing with often is bumping up against people who are doing you know, work, I guess, for their livelihoods, and maybe that is taking precedent over conservation with, hey, there's like a larger global conservation issue here because of what you're doing. Um, I guess back in 2005 when the marine park was established, uh, there was a lot less people living on the island. Mm. Probably it was maybe 60,000 people. There weren't so many tourists as well. It was a kind of very simpler thing. A lot of the roads were pretty much dirt roads, very bumpy, and tourism was kind of up and coming, but we didn't have the cruise ship industry. We didn't have a lot of the direct flights. They're now actually proposing to expand the airport, which is going to incorporate more planes, which will... They've otherwise got to destroy mangroves on one side or destroy reef on the other. So that's kind of a depressing prospect. So um, at the beginning, I guess, a lot of the people involved in the dive industry were very interested in trying to do protection because obviously mm. they're protecting their livelihood. Uh, you get locals who obviously see the benefits of tourism and more sustainability, but a lot of people are here hand to mouth. Obviously, as the population increases, uh, what we have is, you know, we have the general tourism here, and when we have the cruise ships, that's very seasonal. So actually, the population would increase because you get a lot of people coming from the mainland. And then, but I think it's, it's a seasonal process, so you'd have feast and famine. So suddenly, people would make a lot of money, whether it's driving taxis, minibuses, water taxis, anything involved in kind of tourism. But then when it drops down, suddenly you have all these people needing income and food, and unfortunately, the reef is what takes the toll. Um, obviously, this is a multi-use area, so people can still fish with hook and line. They can remove certain species. There's just certain methods they can't do and certain species removed. So we're not stopping people feeding themselves. They just have to do it in a more sustainable manner. Uh, and unfortunately, using a spear is a really easy, quick way to shoot mm -hmm. a bunch of fish. Lobster and conch, most tourists want to eat those. So obviously, they actually have a high market value. So yet again, people go out, scoop up a bunch of those, and then people, people even kill sharks and turtles here, which are protected. And those are kind of the key things that tourists really want to see. So, um, yeah, tourism increasing, people needing income, but whether it's done responsibly, we're basically kind of the person in the middle trying to help everyone out and make things, you know, for the next generation. A lot of that lobster caught in Honduras also gets chipped up to the States, right? Yeah, so we're one of the main product producers of uh, lobster. Uh, the problem is, what people don't know is it's actually a very dangerous method. So they have lobster divers. So basically these guys are on boats, they have dive gear. Most of them don't really know how to dive. They don't understand about dive tables. They don't have dive computers. And they just basically go down, get as many lobsters as possible, come back up, grab another tank, go back down again. And they're obviously not operating in 20, 30 foot of water. They're working in deeper areas. And a lot of them do get bent. So the quickest way to solution is just basically grab another tank and go back down. Can so, you explain what that is? So basically, uh, the longer you dive at a certain depth, you'll get nitrogen in your blood system. So obviously, when you breathe, you've got like 79% oxygen, I mean nitrogen. When you're underwater, the pressure increases, you basically get more nitrogen in your system, and you do naturally exhale it. So when you are diving, the deeper you go, the more gets into your blood. Uh, if you come up slowly, do your safety stop, you'll exhale it. However, if you don't do your safety stops, uh, it can form bubbles in your blood, and basically it meets at the joints, so usually it's your elbows and knees and stuff like that, and actually can cause paralysis if it's not looked after properly. So these people will come up, 
they'll start feeling terrible and they'll just grab another tank, go down. And once they go down, then obviously the bubbles aren't formed anymore. But it's the process of actually having to decompress, remove the bubbles. So there is a chamber here at Anthony's Key Resort. And a lot of times you'll go there and you'll see these poor people bent over in pain, bent double, and it can cause permanent injury. And you'll see in certain areas like Lilla Mesquitia on the uh, East Coast, a lot of people there were lobster divers and they've been really badly injured from it. So a lot of the lobster goes there. Uh, they try to change the rules to try and make it into traps to actually stop people mm. physically diving, but now you're making a lot more people unemployed. So actually, it's been reinstigated again, and people are still diving. So, yeah, you got to think about what lobsters do and are. Theoretically, they're the cockroaches of the sea. They eat kind of all the waste matter. Um, obviously, cover them in butter, and they're still yummy. But uh, yeah, they're those kind of things, and obviously, there are repercussions from wanting to buy lobster. Wow. There's a lot to that. <laughs> um, did you come to Roatan for this work, or were you already here? No. So, as I said, obviously, I wanted to always bring marine biologists, and after doing my master's, I kind of had the thought of working in a developing country with a marine park. So the idea is if you go, let's say, to the States, Australia, where actually there's a marine reserve fully instigated, mm. there's very definitive roles. You're going to come in, and you're going to be the warden, you're going to be the ranger, you're going to be the education coordinator. So coming in somewhere where it's just kind of starting up, you basically can build it up from the bottom. So I just finished my master's, I was looking for a job, I was about to go to Australia to do something I definitely didn't want to do. And I kind of told my boss, like, I might be going in a week or two, but I'd rather go to a developing country and work with a marine park. And he just like, oh my god. I just obviously just in Honduras a couple of months ago, one of my friends from university has just started a marine park, you should go there. So I contacted him, he's like, you're a dive master, you're pretty much marine biologist, you'll be able to fit in quite easily, see how it goes. And I guess I flew out here and like a month and a half later I got put in charge of the marine park. One of the reasons why so many divers come here and what makes, I guess, your work and what they're doing so interesting is that and I hadn't known this, but this is the longest like, continuous reef in the Northern Hemisphere? Yes, yeah, so there's the two main barrier reefs. Obviously, there's the Great Barrier Reef, which is number one, and this is the second largest reef, which I guess is in the Northern Hemisphere. So it runs from the top of the Yucatan Peninsula through Belize, a teeny tiny portion of Guatemala, and then comes along to us in the Bay Islands. So it is a huge expanse. There's four countries incorporated on it, and... Yeah, I mean, it's a really healthy reef. Uh, there is an organization called Healthy Reefs Initiative. So they've actually been doing studies using the Atlantic Gulf Rapid Reef Assessment. It's called AGRA. And they basically assess the healthiness of the reef. And they've been doing stuff, I think, since 2006. And actually, Roatan had one of the healthiest reefs in the whole Mesoamerican up until about a year or two ago before stony coral tissue loss disease arrived. So that was solely due to the efforts of what the Roatan Marine Park did regarding patrols. Um, we're now trying to incorporate more of the island and you know, try and do education, alternative livelihood, and other, good, other programs which can move people away from relying as fishing as a sole source of income and trying to move for sustainable manners and ecotourism. What is the cause of the stony coral tissue loss disease? Okay, so it originated in Florida in 2015. It was basically the hottest summer and the hottest winter. They were dredging the Miami-Dade port. A whole lot of bacteria and weird stuff came up and then basically 
cause this disease and it wipes out like 25 species. So it is a devastating thing. The people in Florida didn't really know what was happening and it happened so quickly. Um, mortality can be done in literally a few weeks. So before you even realize what's happening, these main species, which are pillar and maize, they can just disappear before your eyes. Uh, and then there's other brains and other corals, which are the main reef building structures. So. It's a devastating thing. It kind of can move several kilometers a month and just wipe out. And it's kind of like the Ebola of the reef. It's kind of like there's a 98% kill rate. So if it gets it, it pretty much is going to die. Uh, there are a few corals that are resilient, very few. And then also we can treat them with amoxicillin. So we can actually do an no antibiotic. Way but you have to reapply. So it's not like a one-off treatment. Uh, you have to reapply and you're kind of going to a forest fire with two cups of water and kind of deciding where to distribute your water, which is a very depressing thing. Don't you kind of like mark the area so that people know that that area is infected? Yeah. So one of the key things you need is science. You need to actually collect data. You can't just basically, well, Theoretically, you could just apply a, um, antibiotics everywhere, but pretty much just like pouring it in the ocean. So you need to actually see if it's effective, see which species uh, basically react best to it, see if you can get a percentage and see effectiveness. And you know, if you know that pillar corals and maize corals do not respond to it, there's no point treating them anymore. If they're gonna die, obviously it's eventual and, and it's very depressing. But uh, yeah, if you know that other ones react well, you can then target those species and you can take photos every month and see if, you know, application is needed again, how successful it is. So yeah, there are lots of tags around Roatan. We're basically going out every month to do reassessment. We've been in treatment pretty much several times a week going to different sites. We have uh, dive shops also have adopted sites. So they go and check, they make sure. And I mean, yet again, you've got millions and millions of uh, coral, like corals out there and we can only treat a thousand or two thousand. So it's a daunting prospect. I would hope this isn't true, but some people might be thinking, okay, something dies, a species dies, whatever, there's tons of species. Um, but there's an interdependence on the coral reef where if, some kids outside, where if something dies, there's something that depends on it and then something that depends on that. Is that like, <laughs> it's a well, rudimentary idea of it, but is that kind of true? You gotta think about what the important roles of the reef are. So the first thing is, Pretty much there's a lot of marine species that live there and that's the main source of protein for most people. So the number of people that live on the shorelines mm. around reefs. So you've got food there. Also the reefs act as a, basically a breaker for storms. So you've got these main stony coral tissue loss disease which is affecting the main stony corals and these are the main building blocks of the reef. So these are the big corals that build the structure. So the problem is if these suddenly just disappear, they no longer grow, we have an increased number of hurricanes because of global warming, which is true. Um, basically these reefs are gonna be completely destroyed. They're then There's gonna be a lot more damage done to the shorelines. Uh, we're already kind of cutting down mangroves and adjusting how shorelines are now. So there's gonna be like a knock-on effect and whether it's reduction in fish species, more damage done by storms, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like, Obviously for corals, it's like death by a thousand cuts, whether it's pollution, uh, anchoring, overfishing, and now this is kind of a real kind of nail in the coffin. Yeah, and there are a lot of people here who quite literally live on the water. And if a storm comes in, like that's all I was thinking of. I went out to the east yesterday and I just kept thinking like, holy crap, like if a big storm came through, that would be really devastating. So we did have those two hurricanes that pretty much devastated the mainland. Uh, we were very fortunate and didn't really 
Uh, we, we didn't get that much rain, but I mean, there was a storm surge. So you could see these big waves breaking. And I mean, depending on where the hurricane could be, this island could be wiped out or then, you know, pretty much everything within the first 50 feet, 100 feet of the shoreline could be completely damaged and wiped out. So we've been very fortunate. We haven't really experienced anything since 2005. Um, unfortunately, we are kind of due for one, but uh, we've been very fortunate. And yeah, it is the idea in 50 years time, everything where you see here could be completely changed and altered. And, you know, will the reef be receiving enough sunlight because the levels have changed? Is there ocean acidification, the water temperature increasing, causing more bleaching, which is affected to certain species? And they can re recover from bleaching, but if it's prolonged, then yeah, there's mm. a, it's so this is a passing prospect, but obviously you need to kind of think positives in some ways, because if you just don't act on anything, nothing will change. I spent a lot of time in Indonesia and also there, and also in many places in Southeast Asia, people are living either right on the ocean or right on rivers. Indonesia has a massive plastic problem. Uh, much of that plastic is washing up from other places, but there are also many people who live on rivers who do unfortunately throw their trash and their plastic into the river. You know, that's not necessarily because they are evil people, but it's either due to a lack of an education about what that's going to cause or a lack of like services in municipalities, meaning that they don't have proper trash removal or they don't have proper recycling services. Um, when we went out on the water yesterday, I saw a bit of that, nowhere near like the level of debris that I saw in Indonesia. But I was wondering about those type of municipal services here because I would assume that if plastics and things are going into the water, that's going to be quite damaging to the reef. So here in Central America, like single-use plastic is a huge thing. So everywhere relies on it. Everyone uses styrofoam. You go to the mainland and basically, yeah, they use rivers as a source of removing garbage. So uh, certain cities, they'll literally just have the garbage dump on the side of the road. They basically take everything and dump it because they don't actually have a proper dump. They'll have people that go through it taking anything that's recyclable. And once a week, they get bulldozers that actually push them off the hill into the rivers. So that's their way of dealing it and that's the way they do it. Um, there was several years ago a viral video that came out about the uh, plastic garbage island in the Caribbean. Oh, so yeah. that was actually my girlfriend's video. Really? Photos and that was me jumping into it. So that actually raised a lot of awareness, um, did a lot of things. So it was a good thing for education and people to understand about the damage of plastic waste. But the origin of that was actually from the Montagua River over in Nicaragua. Now. No, from Guatemala, sorry. So they've got huge issues. And any time there's actually heavy rains, all these villages and all these places that live along these rivers that go up hundreds of miles in, all the heavy rains suddenly flush everything out. So you get all this basically garbage and waste coming out. Here on the island as well, we kind of do it on a smaller scale in some colonias where you know garbage trucks can't reach them. Uh, people just put it on the side of the road. And when we do have that heavy rain, you'll go to certain areas and you'll see everything just flush out. So lots of plastic bottles, bags, organic waste as well. Uh, here we do have two municipal dumps. Uh, problem is, People have been fighting over it. There's been lots of issues, whether people can do basically incineration area, whether they generate enough garbage to do incineration. Uh, they did pass a municipal decree that actually banned styrofoam, plastic bags, certain plastic bottles and plastic straws. Things were moving forward, but then we had COVID, so everyone's kind of stepped back it, and no one's actually enforcing or caring. So it was a big difference. Uh, the cruise ship industry stopped, so we weren't getting 20,000 people disembarking and basically eating out of styrofoam and using plastic forks and knives every day. So we'll see how things go, because if the cruise ships do come back permanently, we definitely need to address this issue, because we have an unsustainability with the garbage dump. So we had one 
It was only supposed to be used for 10 years. We used it for 15, and obviously the increase in population just skyrocketed, and then when the tourism. And basically, it used to go on fire, so you'd have all this plastic and styrofoam burning for months and months. Eventually, they managed to smother the whole thing out, and they basically just built one next door. So it's identical, the same problems. When it rains, a lot of it does flow out. You have all these toxic chemicals leaking out. There is no proper place to dispose of oils and other, other contaminants here. So we're on a tiny island. Everyone lives near the coast, and that's where the dump is as well. So. The Marine Park has been trying to do an anti-plastic campaign for years. We were actually doing paper cups, paper straws, uh, paper food, kind of um, containers, and also wooden cutlery. So we kind of promote the sale of that, and we did over five million paper cups and straws. So these probably still ended up on the dump. They were on fire, but at least they were paper and not plastic. We're all sort of dependent on the ocean, on water sources. Are, are you aware of any sort of like international cooperation that's at least mildly successful in preventing these issues? Um, we had um, SodaStream come here and try and work on some programs. We've had a few different boats coming in here, the skimmers. Uh, after all the hype of what happened with the kind of the garbage islands, people were like, oh, we want to come here, we want to bring things. But the reality is we can't predict when it's going to happen. Mm. Obviously, if they have a boat here and there's a lot of heavy rains on the mainland, guaranteed there'll be miles of garbage coming out. But, you know, to come and sit and wait for rain isn't a very good, you know, business model for a conservation group. So we did actually have a boat here that was here stationed for a few months. But, uh, I mean, I guess the key is getting people to reduce their garbage waste to more people doing recycling and actually, you know, trying to think about where all that stuff goes. What is the issue with uh, lionfish? So lionfish is an invasive species. It originates in kind of the Indo-Pacific. You can find it in the Mediterranean as well, like the Red Sea. Well, actually, it's invading the Mediterranean now. It's from the Red Sea. So uh, basically, it's a beautiful fish. People kind of like to have it in their aquarium. Like in the Indo-Pacific, people love taking photos because you wouldn't actually see that many of them. They're kind of like a rarity. So people had them in their aquariums in the US. Uh, some guy in Florida basically um, released a few, and within the decade or two, they multiplied into the millions. They spread from Florida to Mexico, pretty much throughout the whole Caribbean and also the Mesoamerican, working its way through Central America as well towards South America. So without natural predators, they basically increase. They obviously then eat lots of other animals. They reproduce more because there are abundancy in numbers, and it's kind of an exponential growth line. So if it leaves unchecked, basically they ruin the environment. It's always Florida. <laughs> yeah, they're the ones that started Sony Carl, and we can point lots of fingers at them about different things. So, um, yeah, so basically we were proactive. We started training people to hunt lionfish so we can remove them because obviously it's beyond the capacity of what the marine park and their staff can do. So we've trained over 3,000 people to remove them. We're, the, yeah, we're removing thousands and, well, I guess, tens of thousands a year, if that's more of a realistic number. So, yeah, if we hadn't done that, all the reef would be basically um, lionfish. And fortunately, the topography here, we basically, uh, we have very steep walls. That's one of the main renowning things about the Bay Islands and Roatan especially. So the topography goes down. So you'll be in these shallow 40-foot areas, and if you go another two, 300 meters out, you're in 1,000 foot of water. So lionfish can leap and live in deep areas, but it's not like Florida where they've got these big expanses of flats of 100 foot, which are just continuous for miles, where everywhere is covered in lionfish. They are edible, right? 
yeah, totally. They're actually a really good white, dense meat. Uh, very tasty, very versatile. You can use them for, I guess, ceviche. You can grill them, fry them. Uh, they not really have a fishy smell, so they are good. Uh, there is a good market for them. I guess they sell them in Whole Foods up in the U.S. And oh, yeah. It's actually pretty expensive because people are doing a good thing by removing them and also eating them. So also... If you're going to eat fish, it's better to eat an invasive species rather than actually something that people want to see on the reef. So I love groupers. Uh, I guess I did eat grouper more when I was younger, but obviously understanding I'd much rather see groupers on the reef than actually on my plate. I can eat something which is tastier, which is lionfish, and I'm doing a good thing by eating them instead of other species. What is the, I guess, necessity of, of the grouper to the reef? They're vital? Uh, the groupers are kind of up on the food chain. They're basically removers. We don't have that many sharks here. Mm. So you need those kind of top-level piscivores on the trophic level to actually remove kind of injured and smaller fish. Because if you kind of remove those upper-level fish, what happens is the certain smaller fish then increase in numbers. Maybe they then eat too much of their food source, which then causes a collapse in the ecosystem. So you need to have a healthy reef, which would normally include sharks, to kind of keep everything in check. So that's where invasive species cause problem. That's when also targeting of specific species in overfishing cause other issues. I see. You do have some sort of method for tracking like hammerhead sharks around here, right? Or uh, we're basically trying to do like a database collection thing where people, it's not just hammerheads, it's any sharks. Ah. But obviously hammerheads are the most common sharks other than reef sharks, which are at the shark dive that people see. Uh, you do get the occasional silky very unoccasional mako, oceanic white tip, things like that. There are a lot more nurse sharks as well, but I mean, yeah, the most ones people are seeing at the moment on a sporadic level are the hammerheads. I got you. Now, I believe that you've been able to partner with either the government or like the military in order to use patrols to protect the reef? So originally we teamed up with the national police because mm. uh, we need someone to actually do the enforcement. So our park rangers are basically glorified boat captains. So they're there to basically search around, look around, and take the authority bodies to where the crime is being done. So our boats go out. We have the Honduran Navy now, and these guys are about, uh, they're legally allowed to board boats, and they can basically arrest people. So they apprehend people, then they'll get taken to a police station, and they usually get 24 hours in jail, which really isn't much of a deterrent for people that are doing this as a professional life. You know, all they're losing is their mask and fins and a piece of rebar. So it's not that much of a deterrent, and it's kind of unfortunate we can catch people again and again and again, and that's only if we actually do apprehend them. So we have five patrol boats. They patrol the 80 miles of coastline around Roatan, so it's a huge area, and people will go out nighttime, daytime, whether it's early mornings, late in the evenings, whether it's windy, beautiful sunny day. It's very hard, and you know, you've got a lot of ocean for people to go, and people do this professionally now, so they're a lot more sneakier, whether they have a piece of fishing line tied to their foot or whether they hide bags. The boats aren't that kind of, they're painted black, they're pretty obvious, anyone that knows what they look like, they can see them a few miles away, so they have time to try and hide things, so the guys do a hard job out there, um, there isn't really a port authority on a boat, and same with the Navy, so we're responsible for rescues, we're responsible for inspections, we're with the municipality, you know, searching for people that are cutting down mangroves, doing illegal activities, so... Our role and responsibility is above and beyond what normal NGOs have to do because there isn't the infrastructure with other organizations. Is that quite stressful for you? 
I'm not the one having to drive the boat, but uh, <laughs> yeah, when there was an issue with Little French Key, uh, basically this guy at Frenchies 44, he had loads of illegal animals. Uh, he was doing so many illegal development. He was cutting down mangroves, building rock walls, building things in the water, dredging sand, like anything illegal, you could point a finger and say he was doing it. And we would be the only ones that would take boats, we'd be the only ones doing inspections. When they had to go and go confiscate the animals, it had to be on our boat. So it was taking a lot of time and effort and really the place is still open. It still has animals, which is kind of a slap in the face. Leopards too, right? Everything. Insane. I mean, he's got tigers. He's got a whole bunch of tigers in there and I mean, a whole lot of animals. So, I mean, it's a terrible place, um, but it was one of the number one tourist destinations for cruise shippers uh, through TripAdvisor. So now at least TripAdvisor is kind of taking a step to certain animal things. So that is a good thing. But yeah, it was kind of an, an atrocity to the environment. But so. Wasn't he kind of like hiding out here from like police in his home country or something like that? There's a whole lot of things yeah. which I don't want to get in <laughs> trouble right, okay, for. But I was definitely considering actually kind of getting Dog the Bounty Hunter here and getting him on a cruise ship no. so he could turn up to Little French Key and actually grab the guy. It would make great television That'd and you know, take him home in the cruise ship and get your one million pound uh, bail skip. So yeah. Can you tell me about uh, the sea turtles here and the work that you're doing with uh, conservation there? Okay, so here we basically have two main turtles. Uh, we have the hawksbill and the uh, green turtle. We do get the odd uh, loggerhead as well, which are kind of the bigger ones with the big fat heads. So we do have them here. We do have some nesting sites, but not compared to Utila and like Costa Rica and stuff like that. Mm. So. Um, a lot of them are kind of, they arrive here when they're kind of several years old, like four or five, and then they kind of stick around. Um, so, I mean, yeah, in some locations, we can, you know, people can see three or four in a dive. Other areas, they're actually still hunted. So people will go out with spears, shoot turtles, they'll actually lay turtle nests, turtle nets, sorry, across. They eat them? Kind of, yeah, they eat them. So it's like 50 limbs a pound, so it's actually cheaper. It's about the same price as chicken. So it's kind of depressing thinking this is an animal that maybe took 20 years to grow. Uh, they've got a one in a thousand chance of actually even reaching adulthood, which is a big enough problem in itself, other than people then hunting them. Uh, if they find ones coming up on nests, they'll basically get the turtle, eat the eggs, and eat the turtle. So we basically started a program where we're offering rewards to people. So if they find a turtle nest or see a turtle nesting, if they have proof that the turtle actually goes back in the water, they would get $100. And then if the nest actually hatches, they'd get another $100 for their community. So it was kind of a cool thing. We got like 15 uh, nests uh, basically highlighted that year. Um, obviously, depending on finances, it can get quite expensive. So we were doing actually fundraisers for it. This year, it's kind of just starting to be nesting season soon. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, obviously people, tourists, tourists couldn't think about people wanting to eat turtles, but... Um, in certain places in the world, like Cayman, they actually have a big market for it, and they have a big turtle farm, and a lot of turtles are released. They have a hatching program, so they've kind of got it as like a factory. But uh, yeah, here, it isn't widely eaten, and it isn't widely publicized that restaurants have it. People still do. That's wild. Did the incidences of, I guess, poaching, right, and the, the illegal fishing, that increase during COVID because of like the lack of tourism-based industry? So when COVID happened, they pretty much closed the island. So no one could leave and no one could come back. So, you know, all the tourists got sent home. A lot of people that were from the mainland stayed here. And then, yeah, they were basically locked away in the houses. There was a problem with food. Uh, people were doing food drives and stuff. And obviously a lot of people then were going back out to the water and illegally fishing. So people can fish with a hook and line. It's a very, you know, it's a simple way to catch. You're not always guaranteed to get anything. So using a spear is quick and easy. And yeah, there was a lot of increase. We had to basically have our boats 
on the water a lot more, but also in the evenings trying to stop people coming from the mainland illegally over. Uh, people were basically stuck over on the mainland when they wanted to try and come home because it all happened so quickly. So that was another thing they were concerned about bringing COVID to the island. So our efforts were kind of increased on both the poaching side and also the illegal immigration. Are you hopeful for the future here? Like in my uh, nightmare of a future, and no knock on like West Bay, but I would imagine if the entire island was West Bay, meaning that like it's incredibly tourist heavy, um, it would reach a point where it's not sustainable to do that and to still have like a vibrant ecosystem and potentially a functioning island. Yeah. One of the appealing features of West Bay and actually the island was there was actually a minimum uh, limit on the size a building could be close to the sea. Oh. So it used to be like four, it would be a three-story building a certain distance, and if you go back another couple of hundred meters, it could be a four-story building, and that was it. But not the mayor now, but our last mayor, just before he left, he basically changed the laws that people could have taller buildings closer. So that was one of the things you see West Bay, it's very highly developed, but the thing is a lot of the palm trees are almost the same size as the buildings. So um, a lot of the buildings are built on swamps. Uh, they don't have the infrastructure to actually even construct higher. And you know you need to think about sewage, you can think about water, parking, all that stuff. So a lot of places will not expand, but other new ones are gonna go like, seven, eight stories high. So it is a concerning factor and the island's changing a lot. They're going to try and make this um, free zone, the Zeta, which is basically mm. a tax-free area. They're trying to develop and build, which isn't going to really benefit the island in any way. They're going to have our infrastructure, like using the roads to get there and using the airplane airports. But uh, yeah, whether it's actually going to benefit the island in any way, it's a, it's a bit of a weird thing. Wow. All right, so people are going to be listening to this potentially anywhere. Um, and if someone's sitting at home right now, or even if they're going to come here to Roatan, I know that there are a number of ways that people can get involved through purchasing products that support local communities and things like that through your organization. What are some things that people can do? Okay, well, first thing, if they want to support our organization, we are actually a US 501c3 charity. So we can accept tax-deductible donations. So if you want to basically donate to a worthwhile cause to get some of your taxes reduced, um, you can go through there. So if you go to our website, roatanmarinepark.org, you can kind of link on that one. Also our Facebook page, there's different ways to support and sponsor. Also going to our shop, buying any of our per merchandise. If you come to Roatan, obviously you can do the lionfish workshop. You should buy the Marine Park user fee, which are promoted in about half the dive shops here. Uh, also it's your actions, what you do. If you do come here, or if you go traveling anyway, you should take your own water bottle. So a lot of places have these insulated bottles. It means every plastic bottle that you don't drink from it doesn't end up on a dump even though theoretically it does get recycled it's not the same thing as just basically filling it up same with bags you can even have cutlery straws there are so many things you can do which reduces impact uh, me personally I try and avoid anything plastic so when I actually go traveling I'll drink things from cans because actually aluminum is a lot easier to kind of recycle and it's not mm. producing so much waste but yeah I kind of have been traveling through Europe for like two three weeks and I could actually count the number bits of plastic that I got. So obviously I don't know what people are cooking for me, but I'm not physically taking any plastic cutlery, I'm not getting any plastic containers, I'm not getting any uh, 
plastic bags. I carry all my own stuff, so we're reducing those impacts. So really simple little changes that you can do in your life make a huge difference for everything. And, you know, people say, oh, what does one person's actions do? But if it goes from one to a thousand to ten thousand to a million, it will make a difference in the environment. So, yeah, learning about where you're going, whether you're eating the right food, whether you're kind of doing the right things, they all do make a difference. Well said. Uh, well, thanks for doing this, man. Like, this is really fascinating for me. Uh, and it's an honor to share your message and the work that you guys are doing. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I think I went off topic on quite a few things. No, no, no. That, that's what we do. Stuff. <laughs> All right. Cheers, man. Thank you. Hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 238 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Nicholas and to the Roatan Marine Park for getting this set up for me. Um, also, who do I need to thank? Where are you? Gabrielle Ochoa. That is the first person that I talked to who uh, helped me get in touch with Nick. So thanks, Gabrielle. Uh, Gabriella. And also, Vidal, who was on this last episode, knows Nick. I think everybody kind of knows everybody who's working here. Um, it's, a, it's a cool kind of vibe like that. So thank you to all of you. This was utterly fascinating and Nick knows so much and is doing really important work. So again, it's an honor to, to share his story and the mission of the Roatan Marine Park. Okay, Voyagers, there will be more from Roatan. And then I got a whole bunch of stuff lined up at home and then we're going to Iceland. Whew, it's a busy summer, but I'm so happy to be on the road. I'm so happy to be bringing you stories. It's great. Okay, signing out now. As always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon.